Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Brian Mann, Dan Howells, Eamon Flanagan, Dan Baker, and Chris Chapman. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So after the massive success of last week's Masterclass podcast focusing on sprints, which I definitely encourage you to check out, which is basically a mixtape of all, well, not all the, but some of the episodes which have featured guys who've talked about uh, sprinting, acceleration, uh, special strength exercises, transfer of strength training to track, etc., etc., uh, and featured some, uh, obviously some top guys, uh, Derek Hansen, Jason Heller, James Wilde, Jonas Dodu, uh, Dan Paff, etc. So it went down really well. I think people really enjoyed it, or at least the feedback that I got was really good. So I had this next episode that's going to come up today, Wait in the Wings, but I was waiting to see how that went before I uh, pushed forward with the release. So this is a similar concept, but around velocity-based training. So when I was doing research into the archive of uh, episodes that have had this topic or have featured this topic somewhere somewhere on the line, I was quite surprised how how few there was, the, the, how few there were in uh, episodes that discuss VBT. However, there's some really, really good content in there that I managed to uh, tease out. So at the start, we've got Brian Mann, who featured in episode 24, and gives a really nice overview of velocity-based training, what it is, kind of the, the history of it. Then we move into Dan Howells about how he uses it, how he uses great uses it to create intent in the in the gym with uh, with his guys at England Rugby. Then we have uh, Eamon Flanagan, so discussing uh, kind of where and when to use velocity-based training. Then we've got Dan Baker, classic Dan Baker, episode 100. Um, discussing how he used it at the Broncos, uh, assessing readiness and force velocity profiling. And then finishing off with, uh, it's almost like I planned it, Chris Chapman from Push discussing the future of velocity-based training. So I'm sure you'll absolutely love this episode. And again, I'd love your feedback. But just before we do get into this episode, I want to say a big thanks to Vald Performance for sponsoring this episode today. So if you haven't heard of Vald Performance, they are the guys behind the Nordboard, the Groin Bar, and the all-new Human Track. So if you haven't heard of either of them three products, visit valdperformance.com or follow them on Twitter at Performance. So their all-new Human Track system is a motion capture system which integrates the Xbox Connect and four IMUs worn on both wrists and both ankles. So Human Track has been initially validated against the gold standard in Vicon with some really positive initial results, with some more to come, which will be openly available via the Valve Performance website when they do become available. So if you, like I said, if you are interested in getting to know about any of them three products, visit valveperformance.com or follow them on Twitter at Valveperformance. Also sponsoring this episode today is Force Dex. So big thanks to Force Dex for their continued support of the podcast. And if you are looking for a force plate hardware and software solution, visit forcedex.com. But also have a little look at episode 139 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So that's at strengthofscience.com 
forward slash 139, where co-owner of Forstec, Dr. Daniel Cohen, goes into a lot of detail with regards to all aspects of jump monitoring. Um, it's certainly not a sales pitch for Forstex, but you can get a real understanding of the capability and ease of use of Forstex uh, as re with regards to the, the software. So if you are interested, Forstex.com is their website and follow them on Twitter at Forstex. So without further ado, over to the episode with Brian Mann, Dan Howells, Eamon Flanagan, Dan Baker and Chris Chapman. So as I mentioned in the introduction, we're going to start off with Brian Mann, who featured in episode 24. So weirdly enough, I remember recording this episode in a uh, an old flat that I lived in. And I remember the superb chat I had with Brian, um, got into some really good detail with the, with the history of velocity-based training. So this, uh, uh, thinking back, this is a really nice introduction to the topic, which fits nicely, obviously, with this um, style of episode. So the next uh, five or six minutes is Brian giving a really good overview on his thoughts on velocity-based training, um, where it came from, and um, and some really nice uh, actionable um, thoughts on uh, on the topic. So over to Brian. Right. Okay. So with the uh, every trait has got a different velocity, right? So if you're looking at um, a, let's just go with some of the main ones that people usually look at. So strength speed for a standard lift, like a, well, I, I say standard, like squat, bench press, deadlift, etc. Strength speed, you'd be looking at about 0.75 to 1.0 meters per second. That was corroborated not only by, uh, well, that initially was found by Roman, I believe, and in the management and training of the weightlifter. And it's been corroborated by many different people since then. Interestingly enough, Jadalsef and Jindaka, probably butchering that. I apologize because this <laughs> you're over in Europe, so you guys actually know how to say the thing. Uh, if it was Smith, man, I'm good. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> good. Uh, they found the exact same velocities, even though they referred to them as a different name. It was velocity load and load velocity, or load velocity was strength speed. Uh, then uh, Sanchez Medina, et cetera, they found the exact same velocity. So I thought that was, it's like, hey, that's cool. They're right on. This is from the you know, 1960s in the Soviets, and they're finding the same things today. Uh, then there's speed strength, and that is uh, strength speed could be can, uh, defined as strength conditions of speed. So you're moving, trying to move a heavy weight as fast as you can, but you're never really going to move it super fast. Uh, speed strength is speed and conditions of strength, or you're moving a lighter, a lighter weight faster. So speed and conditions of strength. Um, you're looking at like about 1.1 to 1.3, 1.4, depending on the movement. Uh, Olympic lifts have got their own movements or velocities. They should all be, uh, you know, they'll all, all be speed strength. Then above that 1.3, 1.4-ish, you're really starting to look at starting strength, as Anatoly Bondarchuk defined it, where you're moving, you're trying to overcome inertia very rapidly. So it's very, very low intensity, low external resistance, super high velocity. So starting from a dead stop at like 1.4 meters per second. Uh, going on the slower end, you've really got accelerative strength, which is about 0.5 to 0.75 meters per second. And uh, below that, you get into the circumax and absolute strength. So it down to about 0.3 meters per second, according to, I believe it was an Ischiro study uh, for squat and 0.15 meters per second for bench press. And it's all dependent upon the amplitude of motion. You've got a movement that moves through a greater range of motion 
or you got somebody who's like seven feet tall, their velocity ranges might vary a little bit. Uh, but it all, you know, ballpark about the same. Mm-hmm. So is there any um, references that is kind of gives a clear outline that I can add to the add to the site so people can have a look? You know, I've got uh, on EliteFTS.com, okay. put out a couple of articles there cool. on it. And I've referenced all the materials, the Esquiritos, the et cetera. Uh, I've got an ebook on it that's on that website, and it's also on Amazon. Uh, so there's uh, there's some stuff that's out there. And then beyond that, you can look at the the research studies. Uh, most of the stuff by Jindaka and Jadalsef are in their native languages. Uh, fortunately, I had a swimmer that was from there that could read it. So they read it to me, and I had to write it down and figure out what they were saying. And I was like, yes, they're saying I'm right. <laughs> uh, but that's uh, that's what's going on there. And, you know, uh, Mladen's paper uh, from the ASCA, he does a great job in that as well, explaining some things, especially the uh, velocity profile. Uh, he did the best job explaining that that I could ever hope for. Uh, he did it a lot better than I could have. Yeah, yeah. So what, when it comes to derivatives of the um, the Olympic lifts, how does uh-huh. that how does that differ? Does, is okay. it, which category does that fall in? The regular exercise or the Olympic lifts? So the Olympic lift derivatives, I usually just count them as the uh, whatever the Olympic lift is, except for a pull. Uh, just the initial first pull, or well, I guess it's second pull. Not all the way coming up to the top, they, which we call a high pull here. I don't know what the KSCA would call it. But like a regular pull would be at like 1.15 to 1.3 meters per second, whereas the high pull, I would go with just about the velocity that uh, is uh, determined for the lift. And right now, uh, and I don't know if Maladin has, has talked about this or not, whenever, you know, I'm, here I am uh, you know, talking about Maladin. I haven't even heard him on your podcast. <laughs> but, uh, I, uh, I recommend that people use the peak velocities for Olympic lifts because the only thing that matters is the top of the second pull. So if you are looking at average velocity, well, that's the average of the beginning to the end of the exercise, right? So a lot of our guys have got orthopedic issues on the football team, et cetera, or even the throwers. They uh, might have a hard time with the rack or getting their shooting their arms through or, or something like that, which slows down the uh, overall or increases the time spent in the movement, which decreases the average velocity. Their peak is money, but their average so we've uh, we've gone to the peak velocity with that understanding, that realization that, hey, this is the only part that matters. Let's just go ahead and go with peak. Mm-hmm. So you so you go for what would you? How would that differ for your what you call regular exercises? The regular exercises, the average velocity is much more important because you spend thirty six percent of the time in acceleration, sixty four percent of the time in deceleration. Uh, has been that's been found by a couple of different people. If you want the studies, I can go find them. I can't recall uh, off the top of my head, but uh, the average velocity is much more stable for them. With the Olympic lifts, there's only that one moment that matters. That's why the peak is the the main main portion there. So next up is a really short clip from Brian, just a couple of minutes long, but it came after I asked a question regarding single leg training and using velocity-based training for that. And that came from uh, via a conversation I had at the time with a a former colleague uh, who works in football. So this is Brian's answer around using velocity-based training for single leg exercises. It really depends. Uh, Several years ago, I think it was 2000, 
getting ready for the 2004 Olympics, I was working with a uh, triple jumper, and I was wanting to make sure that whatever we did didn't slow him down. Uh, and on his step-ups and his squats, I was actually throwing a tendo on there and, and uh, adjusting his load by velocity because I wanted to stay in that specificity. Uh, and that's one of the things that using velocity really allows you to do is that um, since your 1RM changes daily, as we talked about with Mladen, we were making sure that we we're using the right load to be able to approach the right trait, being strength, speed, or speed strength for uh, for them on that day. Uh, so, can you do it? Absolutely, absolutely. It's no different. I mean, if you would program and do a percentage of one RM on single leg stuff, then you can use velocity on it. as long as you attach it to the bar. Uh, if you attach it to a temp, uh, like the person's waist. Then you're actually measuring body velocity. And that recent study by, uh, I think it was like Bullock and McBride, showed that even on an exercise as simple as a deadlift, that the uh, bar velocity and the body velocity were different. So I always just stick with bar velocity because I know what I'm looking at there. That body velocity, that's a whole new can of worms. And it will, it'll take a, a lot of data and a lot of years to figure out what, uh, what's going on there. So maybe I'm behind the times, maybe I'm being... Uh, you know, getting that old man syndrome going on now. But, you know, <laughs> I'm going to stick with bar velocity because I know what I'm looking at. Yeah, and and then um, the threshold would fit into just your general strength exercise that you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know what? Actually, I say absolutely. That's what I did. Is that necessarily right? I don't know. <laughs> this jumps got better. I yeah, yeah, that. yeah. Uh, you know, as far as is that the best thing in the world to do? I don't know. I don't. But I know it worked. So this next clip comes from Dan Howells, who is now a former strength and conditioning coach at England Rugby Sevens. And this short clip of two or three minutes long just discusses how he uses uh, the gym aware in um, creating intent and competition within the gym at uh, England Rugby. So over to uh, Dan Howells, who featured in episode 65. Yeah, um, we started to use it originally as just a basic bit of technology that we could get the boys informing what they were doing a little bit better. So um, coming to work with the lads, they weren't of the awareness or education about the, the importance of intent of movement. So we had the gym awares in and we educated the guys on the ability to use the gym awares and, and automatically it becomes competitive. So we put a solution in and we got the outcome without necessarily talking the lads through it monotonously. So that was the first thing we did and then secondly to that we've evolved over time to use it for different things one being um power monitoring so uh, something down baker type with a, a 20 40 60 80 and 100 uh, loaded jump squat um and getting a, a force curve for those guys um across the squad and actually because it's just myself as one practitioner and we generally t- tend to train with a squad in in the gym at the same time because they're big enough and that's a great use of time for us within our big program is that it's hard for you to go and monitor guys one by one um, unless you've got the technology so we've got four gym aware set up on four platforms and all the guys can self-monitor themselves on, on that so if we're doing a testing day they select their name input the load work as maximally as possible it, it gets sent up to the cloud, I can extrapolate it, and um, we can have a look at whether they're pro- progressing in the right direction. 
So we use it within training as well, but but also for for assessments throughout the year. Um, it's pretty quick and pretty effective with the cloud-based system they've got. So this is another pretty short clip from Dan Howells in episode 65. But in this short clip, Dan just gives an introduction to power profiling, how he does it and why he does it. And there'll be a little bit more about that um, in more detail a little bit later on this episode from Dan Baker. Um, so over to, uh, oh, back to Dan for this one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's very much talking to Dan Baker about these things and going, well, he, he sees that the, the, the power output attained at an 80 kilogram loaded jump squat, for example, can differentiate between successful rugby players and the non-successful rugby players, uh, or the elite and non-elite. So uh, we've very much done the same, and, and we've got quite a quota of academy guys in our group and developing athletes. So we use the, um, the 60 and the 80 kilogram loaded jump squat to interpret their current um, power output uh, ability. Um, and then we just track that over time. Uh, the 20 and the 40 really are just used as warm-ups in preparation for the 60 and 80. So in terms of uh, what we take out of it, we're looking at the 60 and 80 as our, um, our main metrics at the moment um, to compare guys from pre and post themselves, but also across the squad. So do you do you use the, the gym wear all year round, or is it just certain times of the year that it gets plugged into your, into no, your training? We, we have it at certain times of the year from a, from a uh, programming point of view and that's one and also we have a bit of an earn the right um, culture so we, our guys have to meet certain thresholds on say our isometric mid-time pull before they're really working on considerable power output programs um, so our young athletes who come in and are obviously needing strength development first we're just putting numbers on it to show them that they're, they're way off the where they, sh- they need to be in the future not necessarily for how old they are now but it gives them areas to strive for it's, it's nice to track the development and for them to see their development um, and so it comes out for certain players most of the year and then it comes out on tour when we're in a taper phase for every player um, when we're in a kind of velocity um, 10 day prep for, for competition and then it comes out for assessments so this next clip comes from episode 99 of the podcast so this is with Eamon Flanagan, who's a lead training conditioning coach at the Irish Institute of Sport. So this answer comes on the back of uh, some chat around RSI and then moving on to uh, velocity-based training as we move through the conversation. So this question came, um, obviously, from me to uh, just to ask Eamon when and where to use VBT. Uh, I know Eamon didn't want to become known as the the VBT guy, obviously given his uh, his research and interest in the area. But Eamon gives uh, over a seven or eight minute uh, audio clip, just a really nice overview of maybe things to think about when uh, implementing velocity-based training. So over to uh, over to Eamon on this one. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good question. Um, so where would I use it? When would I use it? Yeah, I guess, I mean, at different times I've used velocity-based training more than others there's been many environments in which i've barely used it at all and there's been some environments where i've used it a lot um, and some athletes where i'll use it sparingly um, so i guess first of all i think it's useful to give you the examples of where i wouldn't use it so instances of where i wouldn't be too interested or feel like there's much need to use velocity 
based training uh, or velocity measurement devices would be, um, I guess, with novice athletes. So I'm working with an athlete who doesn't have particularly robust patterns in the weight room. Well, then I'm not inclined to put the velocity measurement on and ask them to give me big outputs. Um, I'll spend the time working with them face to face, improving those patterns, getting them, hopefully, hopefully getting them to be able to tolerate, um, you know, consistent loading week on week. Um, so that's one instance of where I wouldn't use it. I wouldn't use it where the, the, the coaching athlete ratio isn't good. So, you know, if I'm in a, you know, when I work with Irish, the Irish under twenties, often you might be in the weight room and the, the race ratios, you know, 12 to one, 14 to one, or, you know, 16 to two or whatever. So in that kind of environment, I'm not, I'm going to, I'm going to want to spend as little time with my head down in an iPad as possible. Um, so in that environment, a couple of guys might be using the, a couple of the more experienced guys might be using the technology themselves and I might give them a little guidance on that. But for the most part, I'm not using it. I'm keeping my eyes up and I'm trying to look at what the guys are doing and keep an eye on them much more qualitatively, much more technically in the build up to a, to a test match, let's say. Um, that's where I wouldn't use it. I'd also be much less inclined to use it with new athletes. Uh, they could be experienced athletes, but if I haven't already, you know, watched them train for a significant amount of time and don't have a good appreciation for how they move, how they train, I haven't built up much rapport with them, then I'll try and not use it very much, you know, um, because again, it, it's maybe a distraction and it's going to detract from what I'm seeing with my eyes and, and, and the relationship and development with those athletes. Um, but obviously, that's not to say that there aren't terrific applications for the technology. And like we said about reactive strength measurements, that the technology is more available than it's ever been, you know, with, with different suppliers and different price price points. Um, so I think how I would use it would very much vary from athlete to athlete. So we talked a little bit about reactive strength testing uh, before, and reactive strength testing is maybe useful because it's not just giving you an output of jump height, but it's also giving you information on how you do the jump, contact time. So if I'm working with Paralympic athletes, maybe a wheelchair racer, for example, or a wheelchair-based shot putter, for example, obviously that reactive strength testing isn't gonna isn't gonna be an option, but velocity-based training is, is potentially giving us something just as useful. So we might pick a fixed load in a bench press or a fixed load in a bench throw. We might test that light fixed load week on week and we're getting a velocity measurement there, which just like the uh, reactive strength index, ultimately velocity is a distance divided by a time. So with those athletes, I might use it as a weekly monitor, just like we might use reactive strength, but that might be the only the only time I use it with, with some athletes. Um, I like the idea of using it um, to maybe add depth to our strength testing. So I, in the past, I've probably been a big one rep max testing guy. I still think there's a place for it. I still think I still think there's a place for one rep max testing. It obviously has its its downsides. Um, and I think more and more velocity-based training really offers us a lot more of a chance to look at an athlete's profile without even taking them close to a one rep max lift. So we can see what they're doing at 40% 1RM, 60% 1RM, and 80% 1RM. And it'll give us a little bit of an insight into, especially amongst a, a bigger group, who are the guys who are producing high speeds at low loads, who are the guys who are producing you know, low speeds at higher loads and maybe gives a little bit of an insight into our training groups as to where we might want to look at maximum strength development and where we might want to look at a little bit more of a velocity, velocity focused. Um, and in some cases, I haven't used this method a huge amount, but in some cases, you know, it's a nice tool to use to, to limit the fatigue effects in our training or to find that optimal training zone. So, you know, the relationship between load and velocity um, 
it's very robust, very strong relationship. Um, so on a given day, you know, we I might be able to back squat. I can't, but let's say I could back squat 200 kilos. Um, you know, on a day when I'm super fresh, super fit, super pumped, I might come into the gym and I might give you that 200 kilos and we can, you can program, you know, my 80% load, my 90% load off the back of that. But in our, you know, in, in, in any of our sports, there are so many other stressors outside of the, the weight room on a given day, I might come in and the most I can give you is, is, is 160 kilos. So if you're prescribing me to lift five sets of five at 80%, all of a sudden on that day, in that moment, you're maybe asking me to actually do five sets of five at hundred percent. Um, so if we have a bit of a profile on our athletes and we know the velocity zones, which equate to the relative percentage of load on a given day, we can be a little bit more flexible in the weight room and we can say, hey, look, I want you to do five sets of five. I want you to roughly work in this velocity zone, let's say 0.8 to 0.6 meters per second. You can go as heavy as you want, as long as none of your reps are below 0.6 meters per second. And that's not a bad way to ensure that the athlete is working in, let's say, that 80% zone on that day on another day that 80 percent zone might look very different if they're fresher more psychologically kind of ready for the session etc um but overall look i think overall i would say the uh the simplest uh application for velocity-based training is also probably the most effective and that's just simply giving athletes feedback as a tool to drive their output and so you don't need to do any clever maths you don't need to you don't need to have any kind of complicated spreadsheets if you're just giving the athlete their scores you know you're, you're telling them how fast they're moving the bar in a session where you really want them to have a high intent of effort on each repetition that for me is probably the best outcome so if we're in a you know potentially a speed strength phase or you're doing ballistic work that's very much targeting high intensity of effort high speed of movement or just high intent of movement that to me is the simplest and the most effective application. Give athletes feedback, give two athletes training alongside each other feedback, have them compete against each other, have them compete against themselves, and you're going to get a, the athlete is going to get a, a better intensity of effort from rep to rep. And we would, we would expect that we're going to get a better um, training effect because of that higher intensity of effort. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the uh, chat on this uh, masterclass, this Velocity Based Training Masterclass. So coming up in part two, we have Dan Baker, who's going to discuss uh, assessing readiness and force velocity profiling, as well as how he used Velocity Based Training at the Brisbane Broncos. Then we finish off with Chris Chapman, who is the uh, sports scientist over at PUSH. And Chris discusses the future of Velocity Based Training, which, as if I'd planned it, uh, finishes off this episode really really nicely so I'd love your feedback on this concept um, it'll be back to regular regular scheduled programming next week uh, with, a, with, a, with some guests and hopefully over the next couple of weeks but I'll definitely revisit these if feedback is good but just before we do get into part 2 I want to say a big thanks to Black Box Fitness for sponsoring this episode today so Black Box are a gym specialist uh, manufacturer in Belfast in Northern Ireland so I've got some really good clients. Um, uh, one of the distributors of Play Flooring in the UK and have done gym fit outs at Everton, um, over in the Middle East, at other Premier League clubs, etc. etc. The only reason I measure that I mentioned Everton is that I've actually seen that uh, handiwork and it looks absolutely superb. 
So if you're looking for a full gym fit out or just some extra bits to uh, supplement what you've got going on in the gym already, make sure you check out Black Box Fitness and they can be found online at blkboxfitness.com and on Twitter at blkboxfitness. So over to part two with Dan and Chris. Hope you enjoy and just a reminder, would love your feedback. So as I've just mentioned, this next clip comes from episode 100, which was uh, Dr. Dan Baker. So Dan gave an amazing episode the whole way through for an hour discussing um, everything from uh, maximal aerobic speed to uh, what he used to do at the Broncos to his philosophy on developing youth athletes, obviously to velocity-based training. So this next clip is uh, five minutes long, five or six minutes long. And just discusses how Dan used velocity-based training while he was at the Brisbane Broncos. Uh, really interesting chat, and there's more to come from Dan after this. Um, yeah, what, what I want to say is, again, and people get this confused, I don't believe in uh, totally velocity-based training. Velocity is a measure that I use, same as MAS is a measure I use. So it how I use sets and reps and percentage 1RM. Velocity is, coincides with those factors. So it allows me to see when I don't know someone's percent 1RM or where it could be different one day, velocity allows me to see what it is. So, you know, you, we do do velocity-based training, especially for power exercise. We, we want to get a certain velocity. But, you know, on strength stuff, you know, we want to lift a certain weight. <laughs> you, you know, no one's going to win a gold medal Rio for the fastest power play, <laughs> it's going to be who lifts the most weight, um, exerts the most force. So, yeah. So basically, I've been using velocity measures uh, in training since 1993. And in the early days, the velocity measuring device was built into a Smith machine. It was a plyometric power system um, that was developed in Australia by uh, Professor Rob Newton and Dr. Greg Wilson and Mark Fisher as well um, from Swift. Um, and, uh, you know, they had four in Australia at the time. We, we bought one of the Broncos, uh, they had one of the university where they were, uh, one of the Queensland Academy of Sport, one of the Australian Institute of Sport, and also the Chicago Bulls bought one, and um, Boyd Epley's uh, University of Nebraska had a couple as well. You know, and we were really into that stuff at the time, measuring the velocity of the power during, you know, jump squats, bench throws, and all that sort of stuff, um, dynamic push presses anything we could do on, on the Smith machine. So a lot of our stuff in the early days was, was always on that. And I was building the Smith machine, so we never really looked at the velocity of our heavy strength exercise, our heavy squats, our heavy bench presses so much. Um, and then over the last few years, the Spanish, they've been working to measure velocity during heavy squats and bench presses and now shoulder presses and a few other exercises as well, and start to see this really strong relationship between percentage 1RM and strength uh, in an individual. So when you combine uh, their recent research and my older research, you start to see uh, a lot about the athlete's state or the shape they're in um, from the velocity data and, and the marrying of this velocity across a, a spectrum. Um, yeah, you know, from 100% down to lower percentages, there's uh, uh, 
athletes have a sort of a profile or a bit of a signature, um, if you could describe it as that. And what, what we'll see is, you know, for certain athletes, for example, one of the main things to know is when we're talking heavy strength exercises, is an athlete's 1RM speed on any given exercise, any given strength exercise, squat, bench press, deadlift, something like that, shoulder press, the speed of their 1RM rep is the same speed as the fifth rep of a 5RM or the third rep of a 3RM or the eighth rep of an 8RM. And that's their max effort speed then. So if they go below that speed, they'll fail the rep, they fail. So knowing that speed and how far away from it we are gives us an indication to the fatigue level of that set. So if I don't want my athlete to get too fatigued, I stay a certain amount of velocity away, a certain percentage or a certain speed away from my fatigue speed. So if I did not want my athlete to train to failure on squats and I knew that their 1RM or fatigue speed was, say, 0.35, if I keep them, if the first rep of the set was, say, uh, 0.6, if I stop their set at when the reps get to 0.45, I know they're not overly fatigued from that set. They're sort of half in the middle. If I want them to be not fatigued at all, I would stop them at 0.5. Obviously, if I want them to train to failure, they'll go to 0.35 on that last rep. So not knowledge of that fatigue speed, or, or max effort speed, whatever you want to call it, and uh, what they should get on their first rep or second rep, whatever is the best, um, allows us to control training uh, fatigue within a set across time. So this next audio clip is also from uh, Dan Baker in episode 100. So this answer came off the back of a question around assessing readiness. I think it's something that I'm not quite sure how many people do this, actually. Um, I, I don't hear loads of people using velocity-based training for this purpose, but it's something that Dan has a couple of thoughts on, that's assessing readiness to uh, to train. So over to Dan, a uh, couple-minute clip. Uh, again, really interesting, and the delivery, as always, is priceless from Dan. Yes, yeah, you can do that. Yeah, I'll give you a classic example, Robert. So I lectured at... Uh, St. Mary's, you had to fly uh, to London. It's a long flight. I had to get a bus to the airport in Australia, then, you know, various other flights. And uh, before I went, I, I squatted five on 185. I'm in good shape. And uh, no, I got my velocity of my last warm up set and then, you know, all my other sets. So I get to St. Mary's. Uh, uh, my velocity is down about eight or seven percent. I did this workout five days after I got there because I knew the first half I get there, I'm not going to lift good. And I could only get to five reps of 175. But my velocity told me I'm not going to get to the, my top weight that day. I already knew. I still try to get there because um, I'm pig-headed. <laughs> then when I flew back to Australia, I had 37 hours transit uh, from when Rob Anderson dropped me at the airport till I walk in the door. I squatted 40 hours. 40 hours later, my last warm-up set was down 21%, even what it was on the week before St. Mary's, and about 30% of what it was the week before I went to St. Mary's when I scored 5 and 185. So my velocity my last warm-up set is down all the way. 
did last week while I was at in London. Three hundred one seventy. You know, like it was telling me you're not covered. So the velocity of the last warm up second indicate how you are about now. You can probably try and ignore it a little bit and, and do something better. You might might fire you up and say, oh, I think I'll, I'll still try. But you want to get a PB, you know. You, you can try, but unless you really were late in your last warm up set or your first ramp up set, you're not going to get PBs that day. Conversely, when an athlete's coming in and they're smashing their warm up sets, and you're looking at it going, hey, let's kick down the door today, baby, let's go. And you know, every time we do uh, one of my workshops, that happens. I, I say to athletes, that's a pretty good velocity, what's your PB? So every workshop we've done with athletes doing uh, power cleans or hand cleans, we've got guys getting PBs because I say, you're not at 1RM, mate. They've hit what they think is 1RM. I say, that velocity is telling me you are not at 1RM. So we've had guys go from 125 hand clean to 150, 120 to 140. Um, the smallest improvement we got was 120 to 123. So That's a dumb yeah, maker. Dumb maker. He's telling us, and then there's a lot of coaches there as well. There is a f- facilitation effect of having good coaches. There's you know, 20 coaches in the room or 30 coaches for sure. But, you know, when someone says, oh, I think I'm at 1RM, you say, mate, you're not. Here's the data. You're not there. You can got more in you. And there's objective data to support that. They find a gear then. So, you know, the flip side of velocity is it can say when you're ready to go for good lifts and when you should hold back. But, you know, normally your velocity should therefore reflect your training plan. So you should take that into account your training plan. So normally my training plan, if I'm not training uh, and having all this jet lag type stuff, I just follow my training plan because my velocity score of my last warm-up set will reflect exactly what I've got planned. But when you're travelling or other stresses there, lack of sleep, uh, other sports training, you can have a plan, but you have to have um, a, be ready to adjust the plan. And velocity can give you... Uh, sort of objective, concrete data about how you might adjust it, you know, upwards, downwards, 2%, 5%. So, for example, uh, a change of your last warm-up set in the squat of, say, 0.05 or so metres per second might mean you adjust the weights 2.5%. Um, 0.04, 0.05 metres per second change is about 2.5% 1RM in the squat. So when, when I said my velocity was down 20%, that doesn't mean my strength is down 20%. It means my strength was down, uh, the velocity decrease suggested my strength was down about 8%. So it's, it's not 20% velocity change doesn't mean 20% velocity uh, strength decrease. So it's how much velocity change in 0.0 something metres per second. So if you can, a basic way to remember is you know, 0.04, 0.05 is about 2.5% for a squat. It varies depending on if you're strong or weak, actually. So you have to come to my workshop to hear all the rest of it. (laughs) So final clip from Dan Baker in episode 100, and this just goes into a little bit more detail. It's only a couple of minutes long, but it just builds on what Dan Howells said um, in a couple couple of our audio clips uh, ago. 
And that's discussing force velocity profiling and maybe some of the mistakes that Dan's made or adjustments that Dan's made um, in his career when looking at force velocity profiling. So last but not least, over to uh, Dan Baker. Oh, mate, my big thing on velocity profiling now is I would say to people, just do three tests. Do a, uh, do a, a jump squat, measure peak velocity with a down rod in your shoulders and get, you know, it'll be 3.5 minutes per second or 3.3, something like that, get peak velocity. Have your one RM max effort speed, whether you test one RM or you do a five RM, get that speed, you know that. And then just test 50% of your one RM squat and look at the average power there, average velocity, I should say. There's three tests, because what they are, are are the two ends of the spectrum. Zero weight, you know, the dowel rod, just body weight jumping, one RM strength, so the exact opposite end of the spectrum, 50% one RM right in the middle. That's the easiest profile to do, I think. And then, you know, then you can compare between athletes and say, ah, oh, mm, this athlete has very good velocity with, you know, the Dow rod, but the strength level's low and uh, they don't use their strength even at 50%. They don't have good velocity uh, or good power and so forth. Um, so that's a simple test. So <laughs> I used to do a far more complex tests, and over time, you know, I used to do uh, 20K, 40K, 60K, 80K, 100K, 120K, you know, one RM, hang clean in there as well yeah, to split the difference. Um, and all it says is, you know, I needed to do just, you know, one RM, <laughs> a lightweight and something in the middle because all the others just reflected that. So last guest on this masterclass episode for velocity-based training, and that's Chris Chapman, who is the sports scientist at PUSH. So in this first audio clip from Chris, he discusses the future of velocity-based training. And I know this was, 100, this was uh, episode 124, so it's probably uh, well over a year old anyway, probably a year and a half old but it just discusses a little bit of what's coming down the track and thinking back, maybe some of this stuff hasn't come off, but maybe it's taken a little bit longer than uh, anticipated, but it's a really interesting chat to see where Chris thinks the, uh, this industry, this side of the industry will go. Yeah. Well, I think what we're seeing right now is, is a big ramp up in the research because the tech is so readily available now. Um, and it's, it's become a, uh, I'd say like a mainstay in, in training paradigms. Uh, it's added on to the percent RM as a measure of intensity. Um, you know, velocity is being used almost everywhere you go now as a metric of intensity and, and training in specificity of velocity. Um, so, you know, I'm pretty in touch with a lot of the researchers, so we're seeing a lot come out, and you're going to see it more towards methodology, um, specific training methods and getting more into um, the nitty-gritty of very specific programming. I'd say as far as the tech goes, um, uh, it's getting better and better, especially the accelerometer, gyro-based stuff. You know, it's um, a little behind where the LPT is as far as um, dialing in the numbers, but what it does is it gives you a lot more freedom to do a lot more things. You're not bound to the bar. And I think the direction that we're really going to start to see it heading in is more in the exercise detection where uh, you don't really have to tell it what you're doing anymore. And from the, the passive signals using machine learning and algorithms, um, it'll be able to 
detect what exercises you're doing. Um, I think the next kind of frontier that we're starting to see is the application of all this artificial intelligence and machine learning under the hood to do a lot of the, the heavy lifting as far as data analysis goes. Mm -hmm. So more on the kind of data science side rather than the better hardware side? Yep. Um, yeah. I mean, I think the next step is, is getting a, away from the point mass models. So like a, like the catapult, uh, the GPS, or like the push band where it's a single dot in space and coming into a more full 3D model. Um, I, you're definitely going to start to see um, things built into clothing more, more link segment modeling, and we can start to get a better picture of actual mechanical workloads and, uh, you know, joint accelerations, decelerations, and maybe some of these things where when we can start to get this data in real time on the field, um, it'll give us better insights into uh, injuries. So um, guys wearing smart apparel on the field gets an injury, you go back and look at the kinematics leading into that injury. Or you can start to see fatigue in uh, the angular velocities during practice. and All these different things where I think it's definitely going to be the next step as far as um, you know, the tech goes. Mm -hmm. The crazy part of tech is that it's moving so fast that as soon yeah. as something comes out, you know, the next one's going to be out a year later, the next one's going to be out a year later. So it's about seeing, uh, you know, where the next frontier is and, and where you're at now and just trying to see what can actually help coaches. Because I think ultimately, uh, my frustration with tech and kind of why I'm working with a tech company now is that Tech should help the coach. Tech should not make more work for the coach. Um, I was an Excel monkey. I had to type in numbers all the time, and I spent a ton of time doing data analysis. We're definitely getting to the point where the technology can do all that under the hood, and it can just automatically give the answer to the coach so that the coach has more information to make decisions off of and doesn't have to spend a whole bunch of time uh, staring at a computer screen. They can spend more time coaching, which I think is the ultimate goal. So last audio clip in this episode, and it's back to Chris in episode 124, discussing very briefly, only a couple minutes long, smart apparel. So it's something that I know a number of companies are working on. Um, no one's nailed it by the sounds of it and by the looks of it, by the looks of the market and what's actually out there for purchase at the minute, but a really interesting little clip around smart apparel and what it could potentially bring to uh, to the industry, especially this, uh, this part of the industry. So over to the final clip from Chris Chapman in episode 124. Uh, I'd say it's definitely very close. Um, okay. You know, I can't say much, but we're working on uh, a prototype for this. Um, and it's, uh, you're going to see it sooner than later. Okay. That's about all nice. I can say about it. No, that's cool. That's fine. That's absolutely fine. So there's is the is the new addition to the the push band with regards to the the kind of free movement side of things, is that some somewhere in between the, the two things we spoke about? The the push band and this kind of smart clothing situation? Um uh, kind of in a way. I'd say it's more in between in that we're trying to become more unconstrained. Um to uh, what you can do with the band. 
And one of the, you know, one of the, the beauties of being a coach in the art and craft of coaching is that you're only limited by your creativity. You know, there's an infinite amount of lines of force and force vectors we can use as stimulus. Um, and it's whether you're just using mass, elastomers, or air. So by giving the coach the freedom to measure what they want, that was the ultimate inspiration behind free movement. Um, now, being new, we're actually trying to see how coaches are, are using it, and we're getting a lot of good feedback. Um, the other side of it is getting one step closer to sport. You know, Ultimately, it's the performance we're trying to change, and while we try our best to correlate um, gym measures, strength measures, power measures to that performance, you know, maybe we can make our testing closer to the performance. So um, it's definitely uh, a new feature that is still in its infancy, but it'll evolve over time, and I'm excited to see where it is going to go. So is, is machine learning involved in that so that the more you do it, the more that the tech learns what you're doing? Not right now. So kind of okay. how it works is you uh, you create your movement. You create a fingerprint. And then okay. from there, um, there's some stuff under the hood happening that figures out what the signal looks like. And then um, you kind of repeat the movement and you compare it to itself. So yeah. um, it's while it may not be uh, the exact velocity, say, if we put on motion capture, um, it's comparing to itself and it's reliable. So... You know, again, it's more of a, a field-based uh, testing tool that can get you closer to the sport there. But right now, no machine learning implemented in that one. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the mashup with Brian Mann, Dan Howells, Eamon Flanagan, Dan Baker, and Chris Chapman. Again, as a fourth reminder, would love your feedback on this concept. And if there's any particular... Uh, topic you would like to see revisited and pulled together into one podcast Uh, i'd really appreciate any feedback but just before i let you go massive thanks to val performance force decks and black box fitness for sponsoring this episode today so i will let you go but really appreciate your support keep the feedback coming keep the support coming make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and i will speak to you in the next episode